is the Enter Sad Men podcast. Every rock and metal album you should own. Reviewed, rated, and ranked. Right, welcome to another edition of the Enter Sad Men podcast, the podcast that talks loudly about loud stuff, music-wise, heavy metal, hard rock from the golden age of 1970 to 1995 or thereabouts. I'm joined, as always, by Richard and Steve. We've knocked out 24 of these uh, beasts over the last six months or so. Episode 25 is this one, and uh, the theme for this week is um, Sheer Chart Attack. You remember that about 12 episodes or so ago, we did Sheer Art Attack, which looked at album covers. This is talking about three albums that topped the Billboard chart in America. So American number one albums is the theme for this week the podcast you can find it everywhere but do check out our website www.entersadmin.co.uk you can follow us on facebook you get all the latest news there as well we're also on twitter we're everywhere if you want to find us uh it's good to have your company uh gents hello how's your week been uh, yeah it's been good fun and and this this probably isn't the theme we'd have picked when we saw they weren't exactly rich pickings when we looked through the list but we picked out three belters and it's um yeah, it's been one of those weeks. I put it this way, I, I I have no idea what way the conversation's going with this. It's gonna, it's gonna be very interesting. So Steve, which which album have you brought along to this week's show? Well, yeah, it's it's it's, it's quite right that you say which album I've brought along, because it probably isn't an album I would have chosen in a in a in an in an any ordinary themed week. But I have brought along an album that Fits the criteria. Got to number one on the Billboard what two hundred, um, and that's Guns N' Roses' "Appetite for Destruction." So, probably the biggest selling debut album of all time. I think is I think that's right. You are. Um, right. You are. It's exactly what. Most, yeah. Um, a bit like you, Steve. I the, the album that I chose was an album that I wouldn't have chosen probably at all um, had we not had this particular theme to run it. So what I so the album that I have brought along is Skid Row's second album, Slave to the Grind, which I was monumentally surprised to find and got to number one. So that was my choice. Um, Richard, what's yours? Uh, tell us what you brought along, and then we'll have a listen to the best of the three of them. Yeah, before I do, there there were as you did. I thought, well, we, I could choose this, I could choose that, and then then. That list that you sent through of the albums, some of the albums that didn't get to number one in America, like ACDC's Back in Black, Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell, Van Halen's 1984, Motley Crue's Girls, Girls, Girls. I mean, the, it, the list of stuff that didn't make it was unbelievable. That said, I'm glad we picked US number ones as opposed to UK ones because that was even slimmer. So, yeah, we'll look forward to that on a future <laughs> episode. Anyway, so I yeah, had a look, big look through the list and chose an album that I absolutely love. And um, I was quite amazed, actually. It was, it was number one in, uh, in America. It, it didn't quite make number one in the UK. But yeah, I've, I've, I've gone back to the 70s this week and I've chosen the original self-titled album by Bad Company. Okay, let's take a listen. Seagull, you fly across the horizon into the misty morning sun I'm ready for love Oh baby, I'm ready for love 
some of the stuff that the three of us have been listening to over the last seven days or so. So we start off back in the 1970s. I'm surprised that I'm not there because that's where I normally am. But no, this time, this week, it is Richard's turn to be back in the era of the bell bottoms and denim jackets. So introducing 1974's debut bad company, Richard. Opening album sleeve notes. Right, yes, let's talk a little bit about the background here. So Bad Company were formed uh, after the demise of Free in 1973. Uh, Simon Kirk, who was the drummer of Free, uh, went to Brazil with his girlfriend to get away from it all. Not not a bad idea, I think. Um, But he did miss playing the drums. So he gave uh, Paul Rogers a call to find out what, uh, what Paul was up to. And uh, Paul mentioned that uh, he'd been uh, making music and doing a bit of jamming with a guy called Mick Ralphs, uh, who had just left Mott the Hoople. Um, and they were having quite good fun. So when Simon Kirk came back from Brazil, he went to uh, Paul Rogers' house. Uh, Mick Ralphs was already there. And, and the three of them just started to, to get it together, uh, music-wise. A few months later, they asked a guy called Boz Burrell, um, who was, had been in King Crimson, to join them. Uh, and uh, again, they just carried on jamming and rehearsed. And um, what they said was in, in interviews that a sound emerged. Um, and it is the sound that you hear on this album, which I think is absolutely timeless. And then they went into the studio at the back end of, of 1973. They did it at to Headley Grange. Uh, most famous studio in terms of Led Zeppelin, uh, and uh, they used uh, they produced it themselves, uh, but had Ron Neverson uh, to help them with the uh, sound engineering and the mixing. Uh, the album was released, uh, so recorded in November 1973, and released in June 1974 uh, through uh, the Led Zeppelin's Swan Song. Uh, label in the US and on Island Records in the UK. It reached number one, as we said, in the US chart, and it got to number three in the UK. It's lovely and short at uh, just under 35 minutes and eight tracks. 
Um, so no filler on here. Well, let's see if anyone agrees with me or not later. Uh, and the track listing is as follows. So side one, can't get enough, rock steady, ready for love, and don't let me down. And on side two, bad company, the way I choose, moving on and speak up. Uh, I just think it's a masterpiece and I love it to death. How about you guys? So my first encounter with Bad Company, I think the same was true for you, Richard, was uh, an album called 10 from 6, um, which was kind of a, one of these uh, record label best of things, which uh, I suppose inevitably had the best of the, the band on it. And I absolutely, absolutely loved it. Um, I think I've heard this album once because I didn't need to listen to it anymore, did I, when I was you know 22, because I had the best of them. On a on a different CD, um, I could listen to Paul Rogers all day, every day for the rest of my life. I think he's just got an amazing, amazing voice. I think Mick Ralph is a, is a tremendous guitar guitarist. I think the whole band just gels. I think it'd be interesting to see whether whether there we, we whether we agree or not whether there's any filler on the album. I think you know there there is a range of stuff on here some of it's very very good i don't think there's anything bad on here but i think there is a gap between the very best of it and you know the other end of the album i'm not going to say worst or bad because there isn't any bad song on it um but there's there's some that you would listen to above others i think steve yeah i think that's that's a fair comment there isn't a bad track on bad company um i do like an album with eight tracks I do like an album with eight tracks. We've got a couple of 12s to come, and 12's too long. There's very few bands can put off 12 without throwing in some shit. Eight's a good number. Eight's a good number. That's, that's what an album should be. I'll give them 10. Eight's good. I, I, yeah, I knew nothing about it. I knew nothing about that. I, I know Bad Company. I know the name. Never really gave them much of a listen because they were just not on my radar. They're called a hard rock supergroup, according to Wikipedia. Um, but they're not a hard rock band in the in the sense of what I know hard rock to be. Um, they're a rock band and, and, a, and a very accessible um, rock band. Put that to one side because that's neither here nor there. I just think this is this is a this is a really well crafted, written album by some talented musicians. Nicely arranged, nice songs, good tunes, all sing along, easy to fall in love with. And I would say that every single one of these tracks, and I presume you can say that about every single Bad Company track, is improved by the singing of Paul Rogers. Um, and I can think of 30, 40 rock bands that would be improved by the voice of Paul Rogers. Um, I could, like Mark, I could, and I'm sure you, Rich, I could listen to it all day. It's, it's just, you, you curl up in bed with that. It's just fantastic. And it's, um, and yeah, it's a, it's a really, really good album. Please listen to it. And um, yeah, enjoyable, very enjoyable. And so Bad Company starts with Can't Get Enough, a track that is recognisable from the drum counting. I don't know many other tracks that as soon as you hear someone go, one, two, one, two, three, you know what it is. Uh, and a great, great start to the, the album. So do, do you know why they... The, the no, I don't. Them? Okay, so I do. So they were recording at Headley Grange, as you said, Richard. But in order to get the right sound, they were all in different rooms. So Simon Kirk was down in the basement with the drums. Bos Burrell was in the boiler room. And 
And Paul Rogers and um, Mick Ralphs were up in the living room with the guitar amps. And the only way the four of them knew exactly when to start was if Kirk counted them in. And that da-dum drum beat start <laughs> was their cue. There you go. Bit of trivia. Well, I didn't know that they uh, recorded it in different rooms. Certainly the, yeah. the demos I'd heard suggested they were, I guess the demos, they were perhaps together. I know there seems there's a real cohesion to it. I guess, I mean, could, could they hear each other? I don't know. Anyway, the song, I mean, it, it's such a well-known song. Everybody knows it. I mean, so for me, it's just like a big, warm jumper. Superb double guitar solo, dual guitar solo. And oh, I, don't, I don't know what else to say about it. I just... I'm guessing it was their biggest selling single. Am I right? I mean, it's... it's... It was the highest charting single release ever released by the band, yeah. And written by Mick Ralphs, he brought it mm. with him from Mott the Hoople. Mott the Hoople rejected it. Uh, it's not the it's not the only track on the album, obviously that also that was you know from Mott the Hoople either. Ready for Love was the other one, but um, yeah. So it was yeah. This is uh, they, it's interesting, isn't it? It's a great album. It's a great debut album. It starts with their highest charting single. The only way from there, presumably, is down, <laughs> not up. That's the problem. We're back. Um, we're back into Boston territory, aren't we? Yeah, I see what yeah. you mean now about the um, recording in different rooms. So something that always interested me about this song makes sense because there's obviously there's a little bit of improvisation going on in the middle, uh, two thirds of the way through, where Paul Rogers is saying, "I can't get it now. Enough of your love." And then at one point he goes, this one, this one. And I always thought, well, hang on a minute. Surely they can see when he wants them to come back in. <laughs> Obviously not. That's why he goes, this one, this one, because he wants them. That's when it all comes back in together. But this is also why Simon Kirk drives this song, because they're, they're all working off what they can hear yeah. from the basement. It's brilliant. It's absolutely brilliant. Okay, so uh, can't get enough uh, finishes again with Kirk going round the kit. I suppose that was the only way they could finish it. They couldn't actually all go dang together, uh, so they uh, allowed him to go round. And uh, that gives way to track two, side one, which is "Rock Steady," uh, written by Paul Rogers. And again, I think as a track two, just settles this album into a lovely mood. And a lovely groove. It's it's really bluesy, but I, I, I my note on this is 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 very of its time, isn't it? It's very much in the nineteen seventies. That kind of shuffle beat um, that was associated with a lot of these kinds of bands at the time. But um, it's almost mm. southern rock, isn't it? Almost yeah, southern blues. A lot of blues, uh, southern blues influence in terms of them what the sound they wanted to create. And so they, and then they went, they got closer to to that style of music, say, than Free ever did. The guitar is actually pretty dirty, pretty distorted, but it's low down in the mix, so it doesn't it doesn't dominate. Loads of percussion, bit of cowbell. I mean, we all like a bit of cowbell. And what I particularly like about this song is again, Paul Rogers singing. At times, with the notes he's pulling out, his voice cracks. It's just so natural. And, and that they leave it in. It's That's... That's fine. Steve, you a fan of this track? Mm, no, I'm just, just looking forward to more cowbell as the evening goes on because the Robert Fuso can't leave it alone, can he? On <laughs> um, Slave to the Grind. Yeah, I do like this track. I, I, I have to say I'm, I'm kind of quite indifferent about Can't Get Enough. 
I just am. But I really love this. This takes the album on nicely for me. I think this is um, really chill. L- yeah, a little bit funky, a little bit that mid seventies funk, and very cool. And I do like, and it's again, it's one of those observations about seventies and bass players and Boz Burrell and his dancing bass lines. I mean, it's um, they played their instruments, and it's um, and it's so evident. You know, it's um, yeah, I like this a lot. Good song. Track three, side one of Bad Company's first album is Ready for Love. And as Mark mentioned earlier, um, uh, Mick Ralph's uh, put a few songs under his arm when he left Mott the Hoople. This was another one. Well, this was actually uh, a track on uh, on Mott the Hoople's 1972 album, All the Young Dudes. I think it's an incredibly delicate song. And uh, certainly Paul Rogers can tinkle a bit on the piano, can't he? Yeah, I like this a lot. I was watching it on YouTube, just looking at them playing it live, and there was a lot of references to a TV series, a US TV series called Supernaturals, which I've never seen, never heard of, but I guess you Netflix boys might have done. And I watched a scene where this was played in some very tender love scene in that, which brings it to a newer audience. It just sounded beautiful. It sounded so good in that context, these you know two young lovers and this song being played. It was just such all these modern songs that you could possibly throw in there. Nah, nah, nah. This was just spot on. It's just such a beautiful song. And, um, yeah, his voice, we, we've heard the rock, we can hear the soul. Um, you look at the bands who wanted Paul Rogers, like the Doors and Deep Purple. I mean, he was, you know, the voice that everyone craved. It's, it's a really, really lovely song, and, and inevitably elevated again by him. Yeah, it's light, sexy. It's got this sort of sensuous piano-guitar interplay going on throughout. Um, there's absolutely nothing to dislike about this at all, is there? And Paul Rogers, I mean, just, I mean, he, he's so good. It's criminal, isn't it? Just, I hate him, you know. Absolutely hate the man. He's just too good, too good. I, 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 I luckily saw Bad Company live at Hammersmith Odeon in, oh, Cromford, would it have been? Around, I think, late 90s. Uh, when they did one of their their reform tours, and he just sings, singing live. It's no different. He's just got this most amazing voice, and that's why the, I mean, there's, there's no production on this, is there? It, it's it, this is just him singing on this album. And let's move on to track four of uh, side one. Uh, so the last track on uh, this shorter album, uh, and that's "Don't Let Me Down." A real step toward gospel on this one. Uh, backing vocals from uh, uh, Sue Glover and Sonny Leslie, and a turn from uh, Mel Collins on the saxophone. Those girls were a singing duo in their own right, weren't they? I, oh, were they? I didn't know. Right. And amongst their claims to fame, if this in, if this is indeed a claim to fame, is they sang backing vocals for three different Eurovision Song Contest contenders. But that. That paints a rather bleak picture of them. They were they were much better than that. They weren't just voices for hire. I think they did their own shows as well, cabaret scene and stuff. This is all a bit too Cat Stevens, <laughs> I have to say. It's, it's a bit whiny and a bit laboured, and and I, I don't like the, the the female gospel, faux gospel stuff going on in the background. Yeah. Um, like I say, there isn't a bad track on this album, but and this is not this would not be you know my low point on the album either but I just think it's compared to the company it's keeping it's all right it's all right 
to me, to me, it just sounds like the cover of a Beatles song, and I, I can't for the life of me think which one. Um, oh, well, that's right. Yeah, don't let me down. I mean, it just <laughs> is. It, it's almost like a cover. Go, go, listen to it, and, and you'll okay. agree with me. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So, starting site two is uh, the title track of the album, the title track of the band, and one of the best songs ever written and recorded, in my view. Uh, they wrote it as a spaghetti western set to music. They were influenced by Clint Eastwood, something Fistful of Dollars, High Plains Drifter, and they wanted to produce a bit of a soundscape that that, that gave that you know that, sort of, that western feel and uh, emptiness and 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 if you saw guys, it's uh, it's written in E flat minor, not A flat minor, E flat minor. Mick Ralph's came into Paul Rogers' house, saw him mucking around on the piano, playing something on the, in this key and then singing on it. And he said it's it's actually a very hard key to play on the guitar. They changed it and it didn't work. So it's always been in, in this key. And they they loved playing it. Uh, and and it, I mean, it, it became their theme tune, obviously, not just in, in title, but just because they, it was summed them up and they, they absolutely loved it. Yeah. And the piano for me, the atmospheric guitar, it, it and then Roger's voice, it still gives me shivers, this song, when I sit and listen to it. It still makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. It's wonderful. Of course, E, e flat minor is, is, is not, luckily, not no. the saddest key of all, as we know. Yeah. Um, but... Um, <laughs> I've got a couple of things to say about it, but apparently this was recorded outdoors. This was recorded in a field in autumn at night. Make of that what you will. Um, I think this really shows the the genius of Mick Ralphs because it is so stripped back. There's nothing, there's no waste here with the guitar. He's not dominating it. He's, there's, he's doing just what the song needs. He's, in the hands of another guitarist, he could be noodling and twiddling all over the top there, couldn't he? But actually, he just he follows Rogers rather than the other way, and I, I just think that's brilliant. I think it's you know I love I love Paul Rogers' vocal on this. I mean, I love his vocal on all of this album, but particularly on this, it's it's haunting, it's lonely, it's expansive, and it's got a rare um, Simon Kirk writing credit. Who and he always said that the songs he wrote were pop songs and. Rogers wasn't really kind of, he wasn't in that, he wasn't that kind of singer. So they never really wrote effectively together, but they managed to do on this. Just think it's a wonderful, wonderful song. You can almost see the long riders, you know, in the dust, <laughs> can't you? Mm. Yeah, no, it is beautiful. There's, there's almost, um, I was going to say, an understatement about, about, all four musicians, almost a laziness or an effortlessness. It just, it just, it just, all flows so beautifully that it's almost like they're not trying and that makes it even worse. I hate them even more now for being, yes. for being that good with such little effort. I love this track from the start when he, you got that kind of that fighting man keyboard bit from Gillen, you know, that, I love that the start and then it just bangs off. Cause Simon Kirk said, didn't he said that the reason he thought that this song connected so well with everyone was that the girls wanted that girls don't like abusive guys, but they like guys who are a bit, rough around the edges which kind of this was the, the image that the song portrayed 
And of course, that plays into the guys who kind of, a lot of guys have a fancy about being sort of slightly outlawish, you know, um, you know, non conformist. So he said, you know, it kind of played to both audiences. Yeah. And they, and they quite like the idea of being a bit bad. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And back up and he is followed on site too by uh, the way I choose. Again, a very gentle song, you know, starting off as just guitar harmonics and cymbals and then into a real another Rogers lilt. It's a very pleasant song. It'd be interesting if you two agree. This is, to Mark's point, for me, the the furthest down on this album in uh, in, in song terms. Yeah, yeah I mean, we're agreed on that. This one just washes over me a little bit. It's a little bit, um, a little bit lift music. Mm-hmm. So, so, some might say gentle, others might say vanilla. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> they throw a bit of sax in, don't they? A bit of Pink Floyd to make it a little, little <laughs> bit less floaty. But it's, um, yeah. I've got, I've got a note here, Steve, that says, strange sax going on. Yes, it's quite random, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it appears out of nowhere. <laughs> yeah. I feel that Paul Rogers' voice isn't as strong as it on this one. He's seen this one. And was singing along as opposed to being the song. On the others, you're immersed in his voice. Here, it, it, it's just a little bit different. It's not quite there for me. Yeah. Well, the mix on his mm. voice is quite thin, yeah. isn't it? Do you, do you get that? It's a really thin mix on his voice. And I think that's the problem with it. It, it all just gets lost in itself. Um, Maybe he should have locked doors or in separate rooms, whatever the, whatever the magic was for the, those other two tracks. I mean, you're not going to lift the needle, are you? But no. maybe, maybe Paul was singing in the next field on this one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but after that, small misstep, perhaps for me, this album gets back on the rails uh, with track seven, which is called "Moving On." Uh, it's a bad company classic. It's just a fantastic, upbeat feel-good song. Quite poppy, isn't it? It's quite poppy compared to the others. Um, it was it was one of the five singles, wasn't it, off mm. the album as well. Quite rock and roll, isn't it? You just move to this, can't you? And again, that that, <laughs> that bass line just wandering around all over the place, it's, um, it, yeah. And it's got a really nice finish as well. I like this. It, it didn't need redeeming, this album. And it, it, this is This is good. This is very good. You could hear um, Bob Steger doing this. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Well, you made that point earlier, Mark. That 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 you know, this isn't Southern rock. The bloke's from Teesside, but I mean, it, <laughs> um, but there is a lot of, but there's a kind of yeah, that seventies feel, and, and and you'd put Southern rock in with that, wouldn't you? And there's elements of a lot yeah. of different things that date it. That you know, you, you could easily date this, couldn't you, from what you're listening to? Yeah, again, Ralph's guitar in this is sublime, isn't it? Just both. Of you. It's timing on the rhythm, yeah. and it's a superb solo. I never tire of listening to this solo. And so we come to the final track on the album, which is called Seagull, uh, written by Paul Rogers uh, and just him. Uh, quite an interesting finish. Uh, it's just Paul Rogers singing you know, and on a guitar, his own guitar. He apparently wrote this on a beach somewhere. Presumably with seagulls around, and they chose it to close the album. Um, I, I, it's a lovely song, 
it's a, just hearing his voice, uh, close my eyes, turn the lights off and just listen to him. Um, quite surprising, though. I think it's, uh, it closes the album rather than one with the whole band in it. I quite, yeah, no, I quite like that notion. No, I do. I must, I've had a funny week with this track. I went out on the bike, listened to the album first time, and, and you can't appreciate an album properly on a bike because you noise, you know, shitty Apple headphones. It just doesn't work. Noises off cars, all sorts of things. And I thought this was really uninventive and unimaginative and underwhelming. But got back, clamped some decent shells to me here, jumped in the bath, lights out, hold that thought. And, um, and it, um, and yeah, and, and it, in peace and quiet, you appreciate the, the, the addition of the layers that's really nuanced and subtle. It's very, very clever. There's little things going on all the time that you didn't appreciate. You have to listen to it. If I have one criticism of this, I love the way it drifts. If I've got one criticism of it, I find it really entrancing. But if I've got one criticism of this, I think it's too short. I think you give you give the first six bars to Jimmy Page, he turns this into a 10-minute epic because it's beautiful. I think it's beautiful. And it's funny you mentioned Jimmy Page because – uh, this has got Zeppelin all over it. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know whether it's the Headley Grange kind of factor going on. Um, but, but yeah, th- this is heart. It's Led Zeppelin. It's a, an amalgam of all sorts of different influences and styles. And there's a bit of Romany in there. There's some folk in there. Um, this is my highlight mm. off the album. I get that. I absolutely get that. I think it's a really good ending to the album. Leaves me feeling yeah. uplifted and yeah. hopeful. Yeah, that's very true. So we'd uh, better talk about highs and lows for Bad Company. Well, until I got there, you can't get enough is going to be my low. But then we got to The Way I Choose, which is, um, yeah, not great, not great. And um, I do love Bad Company. Um, but for me, yeah, Seagull. I think just to just to you, you query its position on the album. It could be anywhere. Well, apart from track one, obviously, but it's a great track. Yeah, I'm I'm with Steve on the 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 low point. Um, I, in truth, I would find it difficult to get a piece of paper between Seagull and Bad Company. But if I absolutely had to choose it, I'd if I had to listen to it for the rest of my life, I'd go mm-hmm. with Seagull. We're all three agreed on the way I choose us the bottom of this list uh, and for me Bad Company just shaves Seagull for the best track on the album uh, yeah, just it's perfection right so there we go uh, that's the first of our Billboard number one albums we're reviewing on this episode our quarter century episode of and we now move into the 80s, the mid-late 80s. And Steve's choice, which is the debut album, another debut album, but this time from Guns and Roses. Steve. Opening album sleeve notes. Mm, yeah, Appetite for Destruction, which I bought pretty much on the day of release back in uh, 1987 because I'd read all the hype. I'd read all the hype in Kerrang!, and the British music press were wetting themselves over this band, unlike the American press, who were very ambivalent towards um, Appetite for Destruction. Um, but as the unthinking 22-year-old didn't want to be seen to miss it, missing out, 
Um, yeah, I bought it. It's pretty much a spec buy. And at the time, I thought it was brilliant. At the time, I thought I was, I had become a hedonist and debauched simply by buying it. And that made me badass. And therefore, it's brilliant. But as, 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 as time has gone by and you appreciate it for what it is, you realize it's a very interesting story, this album. And it's a very interesting band. And it's easy to have very mixed opinions on this album, unless apparently you're a revisionist critic because they've hailed it as the greatest album that's pretty much ever been born. And they weren't saying that for the first year that it was out because it didn't even get, it got to number one in the US billboard a year after it was released. So let's not forget ourselves. No one was tripping over this band in 1987. So all these people who, all these critics who say now, ah, oh, it's the greatest, the greatest piece of music was ever written. Well, they weren't saying that at the time and they're terrified of not being seen to be part of the club. And that's what's so awful. So we will put it, we will put the record straight about this album, which, as I say, is good. In a lot of places, very good. But there's also an awful lot of poor stuff going on there. July 21, 1987, it was released. It was recorded in six months before that um, on the Geffen label. 53 minutes long, 12 tracks. Produced by Mike Klink. Um, and the story of how they got to Mike Klink was interesting in itself because he certainly wasn't the first choice. I don't think Mike Clink was a household name in his own household, never mind in um, never mind in, in the production world. So, and he wasn't what anybody wanted, but they got him, and the album came out thus. And um, you know, I'll, I'm sure I'll defer to Rich as ever with uh, talk about production. I don't know, all seems fine to me. Anyway, it charted at it got to number one as I say, 13 months after it was released in 1988. Had two stints at number one in the U, in the uh, US charts. Although it did stay there for 147 weeks. But this is all on the back of the third single, which is Sweet Child of Mine. Forget the first three singles and all the early stuff. It just did not make a big deal. They had to come to Britain to tour and be well-marketed and well-promoted for them to really get going. Um, and that's the bottom line. You know, this, this was not a big band when they started. And as their manager, Alan Niven, said, and he's a, and he's, he's, he's a Read anything from Alan Niven. He's a fascinating guy. I take it as read what he says. He's really engaging. He's got no love. He's got no axes to grind apart from with Axel, but then everyone's got an axe to grind with Axel, and that's fine. But he said, if anyone says they knew then that this band was going to be as huge as they became, they are either certifiable or a liar. And that's absolutely proven because the album did not sell well at the start. And why did it go on to sell well? Well, the third single, Sweet Child of Mine, simple as that. And um, it was marketed properly, it was promoted properly, and everyone was kind of drawn towards a band that was seen as dangerous. You had the new Zeppelin, but with swearing, so therefore the new Pistols. And they were seen as different and on the edge and risque. And, you know, you think about when you were buying the album. Um, when, when I first bought the album in 87, think of the first single that you could have had off this album. You know, Sweet Child of Mine, Paradise City, something nice and innocuous. No, they went for It's So Easy, um, which contains the line, you know, you get nothing for nothing if that's what you do. Turn around, bitch, I've got a use for you. Besides, you ain't got nothing better to do, and I'm bored. And alongside that was Mr. Brownstone. It wasn't even a B-side. So a glorifying heroin as a double A-side. And this was a month before the album came out. So for Anna Niven to say, no, I'm quite for it coming, Geffen knew what they were doing. Geffen knew exactly which single to put out a month before the album. And then, of course, there's the album cover. You're drawn towards the artwork. 
apparently, so the story goes, is to demonstrate, symbolise people being damaged by society. Well, I can think of many, many ways of pictorialising people being damaged by society. And it's not a woman being raped by a robot. So there's your artwork straight away. So they can be, they can, they can, they can do this kind of faux innocence about how we got this band going. But the cynic in me says it was very calculated, well promoted, well marketed, and eventually it all kicked off. And the upshot anyway was the highest selling debut album of all time in the United States, an album that we talk about with, you know, the same amount of passion today as we did back in 88, not 87, as I say, when it was released. Um, it's a big deal. They were a big band. But you, you can you can talk about Guns N' Roses through this one album because nothing else they've done since has been anywhere near as interesting or as enjoyable as this album. I mean, Use Your Illusion was the next album. Alan Niven made the point that somewhere in there was a good album, but that wasn't it. And And since then, it's just been... A story of you know hedonism, drugs, sex, rock and roll, all the good things in life, and a band basically self-destructing. Um, but that's probably what they were born to do. So the upshot is anyway that we've all basically signed up to one of the great marketing drives of all time by buying this album, and you know it's a good one. It's a good album. It's mixed. It's very mixed. Um, there are some very high points, and. There are some obvious low points, but I don't know what you guys think. Do you share my um, do you share my thoughts? I too bought it, wanting to live that kind of dream. Hell knows why now, but at the time I thought I was such a rebel. It's like you know, same reason you buy um, never mind the bollocks, isn't it? And and yeah, I was reading that that they went to Geffen because Geffen were promising them the full artistic freedom, weren't they? They were they were courted by Chrysalis, but Chrysalis wanted them to change their sound. So yeah, I sense that um, I mean Geffen and, and his team, shrewd as they are, thought that they uh, they might have something here. So like you two, I got sucked in by the hype. I got sucked in by the hype actually in in '86 because I remember being um, as I often was in Shades in Wardour Street in London, looking for the EP that came out in '86, and you couldn't get hold of it for love nor money since discovered there are only about 10,000 pressings made of it so even fewer than of Killamall when that first came out so not exactly surprising that I couldn't get rid of it but the fact you couldn't get hold of this simply ramped up the anticipation and the narcotic of need so when the album came out I was straight down to the record shop and I bought it and I told everybody I loved it but actually, I didn't really. I didn't. There were some tracks on it that I really, really liked. There was an awful lot on it that I didn't. And if I'm being absolutely honest, I have not played this album in totality probably since 1989. And there's a there, there was a reason for that. I enjoyed listening to it this this week. I wasn't particularly looking forward to it, but I've enjoyed it. So 12 tracks, six per side, and Appetite for Destruction opens up with just about one of the most recognisable openings in rock. This is Welcome to the Jungle, of course. The guitars, the Axl Rose's Banshee Howls, the drum beats into that famous riff. The whole thing written apparently in under three hours. That doesn't surprise me because I think they were a very talented bunch of guys who just got stuff down 
got it played and got it got it recorded. VH1 called it the greatest hard rock song of all time. I don't even know why I said that because it isn't, but it just gives you an, an illustration of quite how bizarre some of these proclamations are and the acclaim, this lower claim to the film. It's a great track. It rocks and it rolls. Loads of dirt. Yeah, it's it's a it's a fantastic introduction. Not quite the introduction because, of course, as Mark said, we had the EP. But in terms of the first album, this is this is this is a great kickoff. Apparently, the, the this is based on the first words that M, a human being spoke to Axl Rose when he got off the bus from Indiana. And a oh, homeless true. man, yeah, yeah, a homeless man said, "You know where you are. You're in the jungle, baby. You're gonna <laughs> die." <laughs> Slash always said that he knew that, that the one thing he always knew about about Axl Rose was that Axl always wrote the truth. So it was all based on personal experience and things he'd seen. And uh, yeah, he's, Axl had lived these lyrics in in the way that he was introduced and then found his feet in Hollywood. Yeah, it made him very articulate, didn't it? As a, as a, as a lyricist, I mean, not as a human yeah. being, but it, it absolutely did. Yeah. Um, because he was able to narrate his way through an album, which is quite a tough thing to do. This was a game-changing song for me. The energy in this song, the groove. Uh, it typifies, again, this lovely balance between all of them. I mean, this is a, the the whole is bigger than the sum of the parts, isn't it? You've got the chugging guitar, Adler's groove, and McGavin, real thundering foundations. And then, and then Axel Rose and Splash over the top of it all. And of course, some good cowbell. Plenty of cowbell in this, which is, which is very, very important. So, welcome to the jungle. They come out of the jungle, and um, and then we're off into this. As I say, the first single that was released off the album before the about a month before the album came out. This is it's so easy. Which is this is just a nasty joy, and it really is. I mean, uh, according to Axel, Axel Road, can we call him Axel? He said the original version of this song, which is written by Duff McKagan, sounded more like a country and western song. Well, it certainly doesn't. It certainly didn't sound like a country. I can't see Dolly singing this one somehow in this form. Anyway, short track hammers along. Couple of sensational breakdowns. Um, that mean, mean motherfucker of a riff just keeps on going. Yeah, just just a fantastic song. And yet, some really uncomfortable lyrics in it. Oh god, yeah. Um, yeah, really. I mean, it's, it's the ultimate perks of the job at song, isn't it? It's a, yeah, the fact that. You know, they never wanted for anything. They had people queuing up to satisfy them in all sorts of different ways. But what I love about this song, and it is, it's dirty and it's mean and it's all of those things, and it's, you know, it's post-punk punk and all the rest of it. And I, you know, I prefer this, certainly prefer this track to Welcome to the Jungle. But I like the way it also kind of, there's, there's a slight twist, isn't there, in the in the bridge where he references the fact that the fact it's so easy means that nothing's particularly satisfying. And again, it's Axel kind of writing about what's happening to him on a day-to-day basis, isn't it? I agree with everything you've said. It is that it's a really guilty pleasure. You shouldn't, I shouldn't like this song. I shouldn't sing along with it, particularly some of those lines. But you did. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's certainly, this is certainly shock value, isn't it? Anyway. It's So Easy turns into Night Train, and now Axel's talking about a night on the piss, basically. That's that's where we're at. This is a tribute to a brand of Californian fortified wine. 
under parody. The simplicity of it, if you believe everything you read and there's no reason to think otherwise, they were just out on the night drinking Night Train and started playing around with the song and it became Night Train. And that's kind of it. It's as simple as that. It, it, it honestly is as simple as that. Slash and Izzy had the idea. Axel Rose busted some lines while they were knocking more of it back. And the next thing you know, you've got track three on their debut album. All about the rhythm. All about the rhythm, this song. All about that McKagan bass line as well, which is um, always a good thing. Um, and apparently yeah. Stradlin, who plays the first half of the guitar side before Slash weighs in with the rest of it. But th- th- that is the teamwork, again, not just those two, the teamwork with all, all four of the musicians. 17.5% alcohol by volume, Night Train Express, apparently, if you're interested. <laughs> and <laughs> an entire bottle of it was necked by uh, Joliet Jake in uh, The Blues Brothers. Uh, and after which he puts his head in his hands and he says, that's one mean drink. <laughs> Brilliant. This, um, when the album came out, this was my favourite track on it. Yeah, because there, there were thoughts that it was about another, yet another song about drugs, um, but it really was just about a night on the booze, wasn't it? it? It's possibly the most innocent song on the album. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's as catchy a number as you'll get on this, and it, it the way it steams off at the back end as well. It's um, just just the right side of carnage. And track four is out to get me, which I I argue, or I could argue, if I could be asked, but I could argue that this is the quintessential Guns and Roses song because it references everything that about what they felt they were up against at that time in their life and career. It references persecution, chips on shoulders, the fact that the world's against them and they don't give a fuck. And on top of that, it's a great track. Really great track. I think this is the quintessential Guns N' Roses track. I also think it's the quintessential Guns N' Roses sound. I think they capture their sound here in a way that they don't on the rest of the album. And it's just, it's a great song. Yeah. Um, and again, Slash says it came from a riff that Stradling came up with. I mean, the first 30 seconds of, of this track is absolutely amazing. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. There's a real balance. No, no one's trying to dominate here, are they? Uh, and yeah, for me, it really keeps the energy up, this track. I mean, it, it's sandwiched between you know, <laughs> Night Train and then Mr. Brownstone. Uh, I would say not, in my view, not quite as strong on the tracks at either side of it but it keeps the energy up on this first side. It's the little things as well. I adore that, the, the bridge into the chorus, you know, going at it with both guitars. So we move so, to Mr. Brownstone, um, which is, yeah. I mean, the simplicity again of the concept, um, Slash and Izzy Stradlin wrote this while they were just sat around in a flat discussing their addiction to heroin. It's just, it's just, it's just an obvious source for a song in it. So... Slash, slash, slash said the lyrics were just a description of a day in their lives. It's like a diary. <laughs> the whole album is a diary. That's what I really like about it. And that's why I've enjoyed it so much this, this week in a way that I didn't when it came out because I didn't, um, you know, you didn't have the internet for a start. So you didn't know half the shit that you know, was going on in the lyrics. But yeah, I just, I, I love the fact that this is just a journal. It's the Journal of Axel Rose, aged 26 and a half. I love it. This is, this is my track of the album. Um, it's got such a unique start. 
And he would, yeah, let's talk about, is he straddling? What you must do, and anyone listening to this must do, is listen to this song, but only listen to the right channel. Take the left channel off, put the bounce across, whatever. Just put one, just, just put one uh, earphone in and listen to the right channel. And hear Izzy Stradlin's guitar on this. It's absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> oh, if only I had Richard's audio knowledge. Just, put, just make sure it's your right headphone, Steve, and plug your right headphone in your right ear. That's all you need to do. Okay, okay. I can work with that. <laughs> The groove on it is unbelievable. Nice bit of cowbell as well, which is, as we said, is very, very important. Um, yeah, and that's why it's a song on the album for me. The reason why, or one of the reasons why Paul Stanley didn't produce this album was because Stephen Adler refused to let Stanley um, fuck about with his drum setup, which is really interesting, isn't it? Um, Stanley was second on the list of four contenders, I think, for, uh, for production. And the one was too expensive, Buck Lang, obviously. Uh, and um, Paul Stanley was one of them, and they wound up with Mike Click. But yeah, they, they did because of Adler. And again, they all stuck together. Adler said, "No, you're not doing that." And uh, so Stanley, see you later on your bike. Who knows whether they'd got anyone else in what this would have ended up sounding like? But I think in whole greater than some of the parts, fortuitous. I, I think he captured that energy and the balance between the instruments throughout. And it's not overproduced. It's a very live-sounding album. And I think the production I mean, it's great. Okay, yeah. Um, 5-1 closes out with Paradise City. And we've got plenty of time to talk about this because it's way, way, way too long. Way too long. And is that a synth, I hear? <laughs> yeah. Played by Axel, isn't it? Yeah. I thought it was a whistle. It's a whistle. Uh-huh. That's a whistle, but there's a synth right at the beginning of it. There is a synth. There is, oh. he does play synth. The only track on the album with a synth on it. Yeah. Ah. Apparently, did you read this? Slash wanted the line in the chorus where the girls are fat and they have big titties. That's right. And the, That's band, right. the band talked him out of it on the basis they wouldn't get any radio play. <laughs> yeah. But so instead they concentrated on things like heroin and night train yeah. and around bitch, I've got a use for you. Yeah, oh. exactly. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, believe that as you will. Exactly. They knew how to work the system. (laughs) I really like this song. Yeah, it's too long, but I I really like it. I think we'll we'll come on and talk about Sweet Child of Mine and that yeah, all of the songs that we've talked about that are overplayed and overhyped and yeah, what have you. This is a song that gets played a lot, but I never tire of it. Mm -hmm. It's a fantastic close to a very very good side of an album. Yeah. Should it have closed the album? No, because the best song on the album closes the album. Richard. Yeah, I like the closer. I do like the closer. Yeah, yeah. Come, I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> my judgment on the closer. <laughs> right, come on, let's flip this disc and so into side two. And you think it's an odd start? This is my Michelle, which got this beautiful, dreamy intro, um, which you didn't see coming. Into a nice riff. <laughs> I just love this. I just loved everything about this song. Not so much the song, but behind it. It's a song written about Axel's friend, Michelle Young, my Michelle, who had always wanted a song written about her, apparently. So you think she might have regretted asking Axel when he came up with the opening lyrics, your daddy works in porno now that mummy's not around. She used to love her heroin, but now she's underground. 
And anyway, apparently she thought it was fantastic. She absolutely adored everything that Axel wrote. Uh, naturally, she was a smackhead as well. So it's always, it's, 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 there's a theme. There's a theme. But it's very messy, very nasty. So I, I, I did a bit of digging into Michelle Young. Well, that sounds wrong, doesn't it? <laughs> um, I did a bit of research around Michelle Young, who now lives the life of a very sober, very kind of regular um, single mum. Uh, still in touch with some of the people on the periphery of the band, but not the band itself. And she says that Slash rang her up and said, you need to listen to this. Uh, you know, I'm not happy with it. Axel comes on and she said that she was, for most of the time, she was off her head. She had no idea what was going on from one moment to the next. So she'd always wanted to have a song written about her. So when Axel wrote one, she was just over the moon. And she was so out of it that she just went, yeah, that's cool, fine, whatever you want to do, just go ahead and do it. You know? She says that when she cleaned up, um, she would watch the band performing it and get this kind of quite odd sense that this was a song that was about her. It wasn't entirely complimentary. And there was the, these thousands of people going absolutely batshit for it. Um, but she said, you know, when it first came out, it had a really negative impact on her life, as you might expect. She said her, her dad didn't work in porno. He distributed films. Some of them were adult films. Um, and his her mother did die of a, an overdose, but it wasn't an overdose of heroin, although she was a heroin addict. It was an accidental overdose of other prescription medication. So it wasn't, the, the lyrics weren't even accurate. Um, Michelle Young and um, Axel Rose, who were shagging on and off for a number of years, had a particularly, this will surprise you, gents, they had a particularly volatile relationship. So, um, and um, they don't talk to each other anymore. But she said it took her a long time to to find it in herself to turn the, the song into an inspiration to get clean rather than a negative influence on her life. So there you go. That's the Michelle Young story. Very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. And I think the backstory is more interesting than the song. Yeah, I agree. I think the start is colossal, as Steve says. It did that very melodic. And I wouldn't say it just goes into a groove. It, it, it's, it's this melodic start, and then it shoots you in the head mm. with, that, with that drum. But, it, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's a solid start to side two, good start to side two. Uh, but it doesn't have the, the structure necessarily of, the, uh, of a lot of the songs on side one. Think About You, track two, side two, pretty much written by Stradlin, um, who plays lead guitar on this one. Yeah, I like it. It's got a nice... There was an element of punk rock about Guns N' Roses, and on a track like this, you hear it perhaps more than many others. Quite a punky feel to it. I really like this. I love the hook. I think it's a really nice, really good track. Really, really like this. Like it more than My Michelle. Goes into a freight train riff. It's nice, upbeat. You know, you talk about those upbeats. Mm. Richard, they're all over this. Yeah. Yeah, really like it. And so, to Sweet Child of Mine, releases a single... Let's say a year after the album came out, crucified by Cheryl Crow, amongst others. That telltale guitar intro, which Slash said started out as nothing more than a string skipping exercise on his brand new Les Paul. Stradlin apparently said, keep it going, added some chords, the rest chipped in, and from a typically unlikely source, you have hard rock, gold, platinum, call it what you will, because it's what it is, whether we like it or not. And do we like it? I, I, I deliberately, I made a conscious effort to come at this as if it were 1987 or 1988. 
before the single came out. Because this is, you want to talk about overplayed and overhyped songs, this pretty much ticks all the boxes. It's on every compilation album you would ever care to think about. And over the years, I have become monumentally bored of hearing it. So I had to kind of distance myself from it. And when you think about what it was coming to it fresh in 1987, it's an absolutely astonishing song. It really is. And voted the 37th greatest heavy metal track of all time by Guitar World and recorded in one take. The solo recorded in one take. It's an, it's an homage to a former girlfriend, Erin Everly, his first wife and the daughter of Don Everly, an Everly brother. And... A, a woman, a woman who Axel loved so much, he wanted an annulment of the wedding 48 hours after they got married in the extraordinarily romantic Cupid Chapel in Las Vegas. <laughs> um, it's not just your average love song, is it? Um, but I, however much I don't ever want to hear it again, and I don't, it is a really, really good song. I think Slash feels the same way, doesn't he? He's been quoted as saying he hates it, not for what it was, just for what it's become. But I think we we. Our job is to review it for what it is yeah. rather than what it's become. Yeah. And it's a good song. It is unique. I don't think there is another song like this. Uh, along with Jungle, I think they're the two, def- these are the, the two defining tracks. This is Jungle, two defining tracks of this album that no one had done anything like that before. So, yeah, I agree with both of you. It's, We've heard we, we've heard this so many times. We know this song so well, but when you start to break it down uh, again, uh, the, the the guitar work in it, Rose actually Rose's voice is is quite restrained and delicate in the voices. So he really knows how to wind it back as well. And it's not surprising with these songs being autobiographical. There's he's he's really singing these with his heart. So anyway, there you go, Sweet Child of Mine. Yeah, a, a track that is part of, um, of of the hard rock tapestry. There's no two ways about it. Um, and it makes way for You're Crazy, um, which is just a, a, a just a nice burgeoning dose of up-tempo rock and roll. Shortest track on the album. Um, I just think this is great fun. Some great dueling guitars going on again. Um, another blindingly good solo. But yeah, good fun. Good fun track. And written as an acoustic, which actually appears on GNR Lies, uh, was a lot slower and Slash just upped it by about 20 beats per minute and electrified it. Completely different song on GNR Lies. Yeah, this is this this works far better in my life. For me, it's the weakest point of the album, but... Oh, OK. Well, you, you're wrong, but that's fine. Yeah, well, I often am, so that's fine. This part of the album, these last three tracks, have been my challenge. Because it's interesting, Mark, when you said earlier that you hadn't listened to this album end to end since the late 1980s. Neither have I, but I have listened to this album a lot, well into the 90s. And generally that was because I would put on side two, I would listen to the first three tracks, listen to Sweet Child of Mine, and as soon as the opening bars of You Crazy came in, I generally lifted the needle. Because I didn't have any time... I just couldn't get into these last three tracks on the album. I played all of side one. I couldn't be bothered just to seek out Sweet Child of Mine, so I stuck on side two. But then generally, uh, when the opening bars of this track came on, 
I lifted it. And I've tried really hard with these last three tracks, all three of them this last week, and I've still come up short. Well, that's interesting, Rich. So, so what's your view on um, on Anything Goes, then? I like the start. It feels a bit bit brownstone at the beginning. But I just don't – it feel, feel, still feels more formulaic to me um, and doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, well, I'm with you on that because I said that the last track, You're Crazy, was my low point. It was pushed hard by this one. What about you, Steve? What's, what's your views on anything? I, like, I, I do like it. I, this, has been, this has been planned for, for, for an EP when the original band was formed with Tracy Guns. Um, obviously, parts that idea, fine-tuned it for Appetite. And – I mean, even, I, I do like it. I do like it a lot. I think, again, I keep referencing McKagan all over his bass frets. He's playing a great bass line. I like the guitar hook. It gets very boppy. Um, and the way out of the track, which is which I really didn't see coming, is very clever stuff as well. Yeah, no, I, I, it, it, it's a good, I think it's a good track. I do. And the, the back end of this album doesn't, doesn't offend me in the same way it does either of you guys, certainly. And so we sign off with the song that triggered the famous Riverport riot of 1991, Rocket Queen, when someone had the temerity to try and take a picture of Axl Rose on stage. He could have let it lie, but no, he launched himself into the crowd to assail the uh, the cameraman. Security didn't get involved. He went back on stage, said, fuck that, and just walked off and... That was that show done and dusted. Q riot, and then you know, you, it's added to the Guns and Roses mystique, isn't it? it a, a riot can never be a bad thing when you're as dangerous as they are. So, but anyway, there you go. Um, so this is Rocket Queen. It's, it's a it's a two parter, and it just I get a fair chunk of "Don't You Ever Leave Me" by Hanoi Rocks in the second bit. But yeah, nice song. It's a good finish. So before Mark gives us his view, I'll give mine. Yeah, I've, I've got poor man's Hanoi Rocks. It's my uh, my few words on this. Um, I like the start, uh, but then uh, I it it's just still I, I, I failed. I just still couldn't get into this track at all. And um, looks like it might be at the opposite end of the list to Marks. Well, almost certainly, I think I think this is a mini epic. I think um, it's a song written about a, a girl called Barbie von Grief who was the self-appointed head of the heavy metal underground in L.A., uh, a girl with whom Axl Rose became completely infatuated. And I just think it's got fabulous groove. I think it's really cleverly structured. It even overlays an apparently real female orgasm recorded in the studio. And, and who can ask for more than that, I think, in, uh, in any song? Yeah, I, I love the way the guitar punctuates the song. I think, you know, you move to it. I, I hear it and I just move to it. And I know exactly what you mean, Richard, because if you'd asked me a, a week ago what I thought at the back end of this album, I'd have said it was all poor. But like I say, it's, you know, I think the benefit of 30 years has given me a bit of fresh insight into it. But clearly, um, you know, you, all I can say is you two are wrong about this track. <laughs> as i'm sure we've been before i think credit to um credit axel rose's professionalism in this by the way you're talking about the orgasm sounds he was responsible for part of them with shagging some girl who he brought in specific specifically for the purpose but he was unhappy with the performance she gave so he 
he, he decided to bring in two others just to make sure. <laughs> what a trooper. What a trooper. The things you do for your art. I think that's brilliant. Highs and lows? Yeah, I think I've mentioned them as we've gone through. My low is, is Rocket Queen. Still to this day, um, I've not been able to click with it. And uh, Mr. Brownstone is my top. Well, you're wrong. Uh, Rocket Queen is actually the best song on the album. And uh, the worst or the low is uh, You're Crazy. And now I'm wrong. Yeah, you, indeed, you're both wrong. The, uh, the worst song on the album is My Michelle. And the best song, by some distance, is It's So Easy. And there, my friends, is the beauty of a rock debate. <laughs> That's appetite for destruction. And I'll tell you what, it's... Um, I've not played it in full for donkey's years either, and I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed revisiting it, definitely. So the final act of episode 25, <laughs> going back to now 1991, Mark, was it that we saw Guns N' Roses at Wembley Stadium? And the support act that afternoon was... Skid Row. Opening album sleeve notes. Skid Row, who were told by Brent Council that they were not allowed to swear. <laughs> yes. And Sebastian Bach, or Bax, as he's uh, affectionately known, is not and never has been the sharpest knife in the box and couldn't help himself. And apparently Brent Council's enforcement team were constantly backstage going, if he does it one more time, they're coming off. Um, and eventually stopped swearing. Anyway, yes, this is Skid Row's second album, Slave to the Grind. Um, now, a bit of context for me, was that uh, at the top of the show, I, I wouldn't probably have chosen this album, given a free choice with with any uh, for any episode, because my abiding memory of it, because this is another album I haven't played in a long time, was that it was a bit meh. Um, I really, really liked their debut album. Yeah, I thought it had some cracking tunes on that and this album wasn't the same as that one and being narrow-minded and you know 26 I wasn't really in the mood to give them much of a second chance there were a couple of standout tracks on it as far as I was concerned but the rest of it was all pretty forgettable but boys I know that you're going to be very happy that I've rescued this um this episode of the pod by um by actually bringing this along so this was released in June 1991, June the 11th, 1991, recorded uh, in a period of months from 1990 leading up to that date, released on the Atlantic label. It's quite a long album, 12 tracks, 48 minutes and 41 seconds, produced by Michael Wagner and recorded uh, on both sides of the United States of America at New River Studios in Florida and also Scream Studios in Studio City, California. Just do the um, the lineup. Sebastian Bach on lead and backing vocals. Scotty Hill on lead guitar. Probably the finest guitarist not to be a celebrity, not probably to be known by anybody other than Skid Row fans. Rachel Bolan, who is a man, not a girl, on bass. Dave the Snake Stabot on rhythm guitar. And Rob Afuso, the cowbell-loving drummer of Skid Row. It charted obviously at number one in the United States, otherwise we wouldn't be talking about it, but also reached number five in the UK chart, spending nine weeks there. It sold a total of 2.1 million albums and something like 138,000 in its first week. Um, the only uh, album to have 
debuted at number one on a Billboard chart prior to this. And this was the first, the, the week that this charted at number one was the first week of a new um, measuring system that Billboard had introduced. But prior to that, the only other artist who had had a debut album, uh, debut at number one in the Billboard chart was Elton John back in something like 1972 or 1973. So a reasonably, a reasonable milestone achieved by Skid Row, a bit like Guns N' Roses that we just talked about. It's 12 tracks, six and six. Track listing starts with Monkey Business, Slave to the Grind, The Threat, Quicksand Jesus, Psycho Love, and, well, depending on which version you listen to, it's either Beggar's Day on the clean version or Get the Fuck Out on the original version. We're talking about the original version for this show, not the clean version. And then you flip the record over and you get Living on a Chain Gang, uh, creep Show, In a Darkened Room, Riot Act, Mud Kicker and Wasted Time. The album cover art was designed by Sebastian Bach's father and artist, uh, David Burke, based on Caravaggio's 17th century painting of the burial of St. Lucy. The band was formed in New Jersey, originally with vocalist Matt Fallon, whom Bach replaced before the band made it. Uh, Dave Sabo, 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 I think we'll go with Sabo for the uh, episode. I have absolutely no idea. But Dave Sabo and John Bon Jovi were childhood friends and apparently had a a childhood schoolboy pact that when one of them made it, they would help the other one. And true to his word, John Bon Jovi was instrumental in getting the band their first record deal and even took them out on um, Bon Jovi's support on the New Jersey tour. But it all turned to sour. <laughs> this is Sebastian Bach all over. It all turned sour when Sebastian Bach got up on stage, I think at the Moscow Peace Festival, and referred to John Bon Jovi as Bon Blow Me, uh, which apparently upset John and his entourage, and lawsuit upon lawsuit followed. Um, but what we have here, I think, are 12 absolutely cracking songs. You're going to hate me because... I have absolutely loved this album. For me, the best album of the night. Um, I think it is absolutely brilliant. It's got a couple of iffy tracks on it, but largely I think this absolutely rocks. You two are bound to disagree with me because you've both bought albums you love. So, and that's the way it works on this show, and that's absolutely fine. So how did you get on with it? Well, I, 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 I liked it a lot. So I'm sorry about that. Right. Um, with faith praise. Yeah, 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 quite, yeah. No, it'll get better. The enthusiasm will uh, will grow on you. I love Skid Row as well. I love their debut album, Skid Row. That's going to get confusing. Yeah, I love their eponymously titled debut album. These are two different albums. These are two different bands. I mean, this is this is two and a half years later. Same lineup. So they've had plenty of time to work on this. And I think this is a pretty sassy piece of music. This is showing... I mean, it's probably the wrong word. We're talking about Skid Row here. But maturity, sophistication, there's, a, there's elements, better songwriting in this. It's not as much fun, I don't think, as Skid Row. I think Skid Row is a lot more fun than this. And I've, 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 and I've also been comparing track by track, and, I, and, and, and that's dangerous because I shouldn't be, because I loved Skid Row. I loved the first album. There's so many great highlights on it. And I'm comparing Monkey Business with Big Guns and saying, Big guns all night long, things like that, and I shouldn't be because as a standalone product, I think this is um, this is a really smart, very accessible, still heavier and musically very capable piece of decent hard rock. There are some bits on there I could happily never listen to again, but generally, it's um, you know I think it's I think there's a lot of good stuff on there, 
and some really good musicianship. Unfortunately, Steve, um, they are just a, a bunch of Guns N' Roses wannabes, aren't they, Richard? Uh, right. <laughs> Not a good start. Not a good start at all. I've always loved Monkey Business. It's it's up there for me with uh, with um, Welcome to the Jungle uh, for just sheer energy and riffs. And so I was really interested in hearing what the whole of the rest of this album is like. And I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I. No, I don't think they wanted to be Guns N' Roses wannabes. Uh, I, I think certainly they realised what was happening at the time, you know, with the Metallica and the thrash scene and, and stuff getting heavier again. And they obviously, with this album, made a call and it was the right one. It's been thoroughly enjoyed and I've listened to this album, you know, way, way more than the other two this last week. Yeah, there's some there's a few missteps, but it's very well balanced. I think that Seb Barkfoot, whatever you want to say about him, my goodness, he gave this album his all. There was nothing left in the tank uh, in terms of his vocal performance. For most of the album, he keeps it full throttle, but just the right side of going over the top. On one or two tracks, he goes a little bit too far. But my goodness, he gives gives it his all. And I think, again, parallels with these other two albums tonight. Here's an album made by a bunch of people who really, really wanted to work well together and produce something great. And, you know, the th- third out of three albums tonight, they have. I mean, that's the common theme here. We've got three bunches of musicians really, really working together, writing together, playing together, and they produce some fantastic pieces of music. This week's been a joy. Okay, so uh, Slaves to the Grind kicks off with Monkey Business, um, which, and I, I apologise now because I've gone full fanboy for this album this week. This has got the riff from hell on it. It's absolutely brilliant. It could split atoms. That's how good this riff is. Great groove, starts off with this kind of really quiet, almost spoken stuff, and then just cranks up. A bit more cowbell, and off we go. And it just doesn't let up. From from that point onwards, for the next four minutes, it's just pedal to the metal. Yeah, so this this is their, they are not Guns N' Roses wannabes, but this is their Welcome to the Jungle. This is the, the groove and power in this song is immense. Yeah, and it's just so much. That riff is just immense. Absolutely immense. Uh, love this track. Absolutely love it. Steve? Still prefer big guns. <laughs> I don't, I'm not getting quite the same kick out of this as you boys, clearly. I'm, I'm just not. Take the earbud out of your ear. <laughs> I like the cowbell, don't get me wrong. but um... <laughs> You really don't get the, the, the riff. I can hear the riff. Of course I can hear the riff, yeah. It's, no, but it, I, I, I know that, you muppet. <laughs> I mean, you don't get it. I think you need your ears syringed, Steve. You really do. <laughs> this is one of the biggest rock riffs ever. I spent too long listening to Flotsam and Jetson. And that is, it's, it's a good opener, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's move it on and see if we can get some improvement on the next one. <laughs> now, this is a riff. 
I was going to say, so the second track on the album is the title track, Slow to the Grind. Talk about not letting up. Jesus Christ, this is a hell of a riff, isn't it? This, I mean, this is thrash metal done by a hair metal band. That's probably yeah. That's what we're talking here. Can something be too trashy for a band? I don't know. You know, it's just not them. They did brilliantly, absolutely brilliantly. What I find amazing about this is it was it was released as a single. I mean, you know, there's plenty of options for single on this album. This this didn't this didn't jump off the album sleeve as one of them. But anyway, I love it. I actually adore it. We're back to monkey business was a bit too slow for Steve. Yes. That was a problem with monkey business. Um, I read that Slave to the Grind the the track that you're hearing is the demo yes it is it is because they couldn't replicate the aggression on on the the version they recorded for the album so this was actually recorded totally live as the demo Uh, yeah in the rehearsals yeah. yeah Number 18 on VH1's Greatest Ever Heavy Metal Songs. Hmm. I mean, the guitar work on this is just outstanding. It really is. And, you know, Rachel Bolan is just, a, I think, a brilliant songwriter. Drums are fantastic on this as well. Absolutely drive it along. All right, so Slave to the Grind gives way to the third track on the album, which is The Threat, The Threat, which started off as my favourite track on the album, but was usurped a little later on. What I like about this track is is the fact that although it's not as relentless as the first two, it kind of it it, it drops so the guitars drop back at times and then come forward again. It's just I think it's really well balanced track. Just not can't stand the heartache, is it? That's all I'm going to say. But I'm going to end all that now. That's that, that's done and done. We're just <laughs> let it go, man. There's not much room for any melody thus far. Again, it's it's. This is just heavy, heavy, heavy. It's just sweeps along. It's just another. It's just another big riff, isn't it? I mean, it's it's a it's a really no nonsense start to an album. And this is what I was saying earlier about the change of approach, the change of the change of direction, you know. And just this, there's a maturity about their songwriting that we hadn't seen. I mean, Skid Row was a playful album. But yeah, it was heavy, but it was a playful album. It was a bit of fun. It was that. It was just their dollar per pair metal at the end of the 80s. And this is welcome to the 90s, isn't it? It's good stuff. So two-thirds of the way through the album, we get to Quicksand Jesus, one of three ballads on this. Now, my own personal view is that Skid Row do ballads really well. This isn't 18 in life, but it's it's not it's not far off it. And I think Bach has the the pitch and the range to carry it off as you know as well. I think you know, it's got its own charm and its own power, and I love the way that it builds. You get about two and a half minutes in, and it just kind of takes off. You're just underselling it. You're underselling it on a colossal scale. There are three. There are no, three. there's a better one. There's a better one. Yeah, yeah, I agree. There are three ballads on this, and one's very weak. But then it's track twelve, and I've and I've lost interest. The first yeah. two are the first two are astonishing. They're they're amongst the best power ballads you'll ever get. In rock, and you're right, because, and that's because they're from Skid Row's hands. They do them brilliantly. They absolutely do them brilliantly. This, this, this has taken the album up at a massive level straight away. When you needed a break, yeah. and do you need a break? Not always, but this is perfectly placed on the album. It's really intense. Bark's voice is at its best on something like this. 
there's a real there's a real passion and a control to his singing. I, I just I just think this is a fantastic song. Of the three slower songs on this album, this is the best in my opinion. To call it a ballad, and people, you know, the, the journalists referring to it as ballads. This is a ballad in the way that The Unforgiven by Metallica is a ballad. This, for me, is their, their Unforgiven. Penultimate track on side one. Song about a prostitute who likes to kill her clients before she has to service them. Given what's come be- gone before, this is quite derivative. It's all right. I quite like it, but I don't get really excited about it. A really unexpected middle section, and then it gathers pace a bit at the end. Um, so it's, it's quite, it's, there's a bit more interest. I think it's quite an interesting song, yeah. yeah. That's probably not a great word, is it? So He can play that four string, though, can't he? I love the bass line through it. I think it's nice and varied. I like the gaps um, in the verses. And this was one that wormed its way into my ears this week. So side one closes with, um, I'm going to describe it as a novelty song, really. It's a little thing called Get the Fuck Out. I don't know about you, but when I listen to Get the Fuck Out, Rich, I'm back at Haycross Road with our um, party tape, which finished, or well, our collection of party tapes finished with this one. (laughs) It was a perfect way of telling everybody to fuck off because it was four o'clock in the morning and we didn't want them around anymore. (laughs) It's a fun song. I mean, it's got a good bass yeah. riff. Uh, this one where Bach is going over the top deliberately. Yeah. Um, you know, bit of cowbell. Uh, of the two, I yeah, I prefer Beggar's Day. I, I think it's a uh, just the the album flows better with Beggar's Day uh, on it. It's hilarious that you know, despite the fact that he's effing all over various other songs, they they thought by taking this out, that's a clean version. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Beggar's day for me all day long. Yeah, no, it's get the fuck out. Is if that's what we're marking, it'll 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 suffer. Beggar's day would have got a few more, but yeah, it's it's okay. And side two kicks off with living on a chain gang, which actually for me uh, is the weakest song on the album. It's just nothing. It's pedestrian by numbers. A bit chanty. It's kind of what I'd expect from a school band. Really, it's predictable. That's what I'm trying to say. The problem with Skid Row, and this is a Sebastian Bach thing, when they, when they become average with a song like this, his voice then starts to really jar. Yes, true. That's really true. It really shouldn't. Like I shouldn't be picking up on that, but I do. And um, and now I'm waiting. I actually think this is okay. I think it's a good start to the second side. Completely agree that this is a song where he has gone over the top and a bit too hard on your ears. But the structure of the song, again, it's got a good catchy chorus. So I don't think it's a bad start to the second side. And um, no, not for me the weakest track on the album. So Living on a Chain Gang gives way to Creep Show. Here comes Rachel Boland's bass. I think it's a great song. It's got a really cool groove, fantastic shuffle beat. Yeah, there's a kind of funkiness about this, isn't there? And um wasn't expecting it. I like it. I and mean, it's still... You know, not as good as the debut album, but um, yeah, yeah, and a great. And we haven't talked about Scott Hill. There's a great Scott Hill solo in this as well, and what a guitarist, by the way. Yeah, you certainly hear him in this. So I, I, I don't like this as, as much as Living on Chain Gang. I, I think that I really like the riff. I do think it is a little bit of a get the funk out, as in extreme. 
Copy, I don't know. Similarities are are there for me. And um, again, Seb's trying a bit too hard on, on this one. So that that for that reason, it, it's um, it's lost a few marks for me. So track three on side two is the second of the slower songs on the album. And personally, my favourite track, well, joint favourite track on the album, uh, In a Darkened Room. I just think there's something... Do you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Vane. I can hear Davy Vane singing this. I think it moves and sweeps and... And again, I mean, Scotty Hill's guitar. I mean, fucking hell. He can play, can't he? I absolutely adore this. I just think this is an astonishing piece. It's the best chorus on the album. And also, you read some of the lyrics. All the precious time's been put to rest again. The smile of the dawn brings tainted lust singing my requiem. I just think it's just think it's a belter. Best pre-chorus, best chorus. It just flows and it ebbs and it's it's a thing of beauty. Yeah, nothing's really a ballad on here, as as, as Rich said earlier, but this is as close as it gets. And powering. It's good for me. Uh, it doesn't grab me in the way that Quicksand Jesus uh, did. It's a bit more, I guess, traditional. I think of, of, of the three slower songs, it's it's the middle one. Did track four on side two grab you? Because this is just the best fun. Yeah, really punky, this one, isn't it? Yeah. Skid Row do the UK subs. Yeah. yeah. Yes. You say it's raining, but you're pissing down my back. <laughs> I laughed out loud when I heard that line. <laughs> this has got some really, really good. This has got some really good lyrics in it. Um, if you could bottle this track and sell it, you'd make so much money. I'd rather go nowhere than not know where it's at. Lovely. His vocal performance on this is really good, though. And the band are as tight as a drum, aren't they? Mm. Uh, really good guitar solos in it. Again, there's, even the guitar solos are the punky, punky side of, of rock, aren't they? Very clever. And when the riff comes back in, Black Sabbath, anybody? Yeah, big time. Mud Kicker is the penultimate track on the album. Big Sabbathy riff, full of doom, full of threat. Fantastic. I mean, Bach spits his way through this. Were it not for track 12, we'd be finishing pretty much as we started, wouldn't we? Hmm. Yeah, this is a killer riff. And again, real menace in this song. Slower tempo, thumping track. Unfortunately, Steve doesn't really get the riff because it's exactly the same as Monkey Business. It is very, yeah, this is, this, is more, this is even more Sabbathy, though, you're right. Yeah, no, I like this. Just when you think the album's running out of steam, uh, this is, um, you know, fantastic. So at this point, the album should end. Yeah. Unfortunately, Skid Row see fit to put another slow song on. And unfortunately, they've blown their wad with slow songs earlier in the album, twice, which just proves you can't do it for a third time in quick succession. Um, I've just written, wasted time, a waste of time. You could see what they were trying to do. This, for me, is... I know I'm going to make a comparison. This is a poor man's 18 in life. Um, I found myself listening to this song and singing 18 and life along to it. And whether I'd love to know whether it was the 
you know, last track to be recorded, or they knew that this song was going to close the album because Seb Bart gives this everything to the point of really going over the top and ruining it a bit. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. If, 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 if this track's got one redeeming feature, it's Bark's vocal performance, which I think is colossal. I mean, I was going to say it's almost a sort of his farewell. But it could, I know they went on and did Subhuman Race, which was his last album, wasn't it? But which was pretty crap. Well, not well, as awful. Good. Yeah. No, uh, I, I, I don't know. This, this to me is 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 Bark's back Bark. Oh, Jesus, he changed his name. His 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 farewell, really, because it's it's a really good it's a it's a really good vocal performance from him. But the song, unfortunately, is a bit shite. Let's do some highs and lows then. Despite its jollity and uh, good fun at times, get the fuck out for me is the low. Uh, the, the Beggar's Day version of this album is better. And for me, nothing beats the opening track still. Monkey, monkey Business is just colossal. Steve? Yeah, I'm with Rich on, on Get the Fuck Out, although it's a close call with Wasted Time, which is, as you pointed out, Mark, a complete waste of time. Yeah, no, I do love Riot Act, but to me, it's the best, it's the big ballads and um, in a darkened room, nicks it or pricks on Jesus. Uh, so yeah, waste wasted time is a waste of time. It's at the bottom of my list as well. Um, I'm not going to try and put a piece of paper between in a darkened room and Riot Act. They share joint top billing for me. So there you go. That brings to an end the review section of this part of the show. Three albums. We've done Bad Company from 74, uh, Appetite for Destruction from 87, and Skid Row's Slave to the Grind. We've just finished from 1991. So we've reviewed them. Let's go and rank them. Reviews complete. Initializing rating process. So here we are then at the back end of our episode 25, Sheer Chart Attack, the number one Billboard albums, Bad Company, Appetite for Destruction, and Slave to the Grind. And let's see then how we scored them. So for mine, Bad Company kicking it all off, Steve gave it a 7.19, Mark 7.8, and I gave it an 8.12, and that gave an average score for Bad Company's first album of 7.70 and a bit. Steve, what about Guns N' Roses? Okay, yeah, so Appetite for Destruction was the second album we put under the microscope, and um, I scored it 7.33 in all the threes. Um, You, Rich, gave it 7.66 in all the sixes. And um, Mark, you gave it 7.94 and small change for an overall score of 7.64722. And so to Skid Row, Mark. Yeah, so this was, I suppose, a bit of a wild card because I don't think when we looked at the list uh, a week ago, we would have expected to have found this album on it. But um, on it, it is. And Steve, you gave it 7.17. I gave it, perhaps not surprisingly, an 8.1. And uh, Richard, you gave it a 7.29167 for an all-time, all-album average of 7.53056. So um, they are. Those are the scores for this week's uh, three albums. Let's see where that's landed them in the fabled Hall of Fame, which is now getting to bursting points. 
Um, we've got 75 in there now. So let's head over and see what's happening over there. It's time to put the rock in a hard place. Opening the Hall of Fame. Okay, so the doors are open. Three more are in it. We now have 75 albums in our Hall of Fame. Um, and Sheer Chart Attack gave us Bad Company, Appetite for Destruction, and Slaves to the Grind. And indeed, they fall in that order, um, the order that we reviewed them. Bad Company is coming at 29th with 7.7. Appetite for Destruction at 7.6 is uh, 32. Um, and Slaves to the Grind with a score of 7.53 is in at 37. In this logjam of a mid division in our Hall of Fame, there are we've got 75. Now my maths is terrible. We've got 75 albums in our Hall of Fame, and I think 44 of them are in the sevens, and many, many are within this. And there's only what one 0.17 between our three albums um, in this episode, and this is going to build up. And at the moment, there's what eight places between them, but there's going to be an awful lot more bands. Um, getting into that kind of zone, I should imagine, between uh, now and whenever this thing ends, which could be never. I'm a bit worried that uh, the sort of five or so decimal points that we're working to might not be enough. Um, well, we, we, we know, well, we have rules. We do have rules, listeners, if two bands have, uh, two albums have exactly the same score. But yeah, the of our 75 albums, our three that we've re- reviewed tonight have all just crept into the top half of the table. Yes, and actually it's worth it's probably worth just outlining what those rules are because I think it is going to be an issue. So that so the rules we agreed, if there was a, an absolute tie, which there has been, there's been two absolute ties that we've had so far. If that happens, then what we do is we take the three highest scoring tracks from each album and divide those by three to work out an average. And whoever gets the higher average of that, those three scores um, goes above the other one in the list. So that's how we differentiate. But, um, yeah, it's as tight as a badger's arse in there, isn't it? So there you are. It's a bit like the Formula One World Championship. It's a bit tight in the midfield. Um, so uh, next week we will review albums 76, 77, and 78 inching ever closer to the top 100 and um but for the time being um thank you very much for your company hope you enjoy the show as much as we've enjoyed doing it and we will see you on the enter sad men podcast next time all music clips featured in the enter sad men podcast appear within the context of criticism and or commentary and as such are used under the fair use provisions of the exceptions to copyright rules of uk and international copyright law To make sure the rock rolls forever on, Mark, Steve, and Rich urge all their listeners to show their love and support for the artists and writers featured on the show by purchasing the original music or subscribing to a licensed and regulated streaming service. 